Hey guys, it's Casey Newton, and if you haven't heard, Pitch Perfect 2 just opened, and I'm excited. Are you excited? Because I was so excited that I sat down the movie's music arranger, Deke Sharon, last week. And if you've heard acapella on TV or in movies recently, chances are Deke had something to do with it. He's built an acapella empire around himself, and I wanted to know how and why he did that. You can check out some video from this interview on TheVerge.com, but this is the full-length interview. Oh, and if you hear some additional voices, that's our video guys, John and Ryan. They had some questions, too. Uh, all right. Well, um, maybe we can start. Tell me, when did you start to sing? I started singing before I could speak. In fact, I sang in my crib as a child, uh, and I would sing myself to sleep, and I'd bounce my head on my pillow and just hum these little melodies I made up for myself, and my parents, no joke, they were convinced I was giving myself brain damage, because I'd really bounce my head. So I look back on that now, and I think maybe I was born to be an acapella headbanger. Like, it all came back. It's genetics. Nature, nurture, nature. Right. And how uh, receptive uh, were your parents to the fact that you were singing constantly? So uh, my parents were really receptive. In fact, when I was in kindergarten, my mom could tell like I needed another activity. This was back in the days, free range parents and like just go outside and play. But she realized like maybe one activity would be okay. Uh, School wasn't challenging quite enough for me. So she said, honey, would you like to learn Mandarin Chinese or join the San Francisco Boys Choir? And I remember just like looking at her. I remember this clear as day. I was like, are you kidding me with this? Uh, like, how about the singing one? Right. And not the language that even if you study it full time and you live there, you still can't read a newspaper until you're in high school. So, uh, so I joined the San Francisco Boys Chorus when I was seven. And by age nine, I was singing in operas with Pavarotti and touring around America. It was really fun. Um, let's talk. What is it like to be in a boys choir as a seven-year-old? Like when I think of what it's like to be seven-year-old, I think just sort of like you know, boys with, like, more energy than they know what to do with, like, very hard to, like, sit still. Like, what what is the vibe in a in a boys' choir full of, like, kids who are, I'm guessing, like, younger than 10, right? Like, what's the age? Yeah, range? yeah, well, it's it's uh, from age 7, or, like, my son started singing when he was four and a half, in fact, uh, here in the San Francisco Boys' Chorus, and now he's in Pacific Boy Choir, and he's toured around the world. Um it's it's pretty angelic, like these young these young boys singing, and and they really there's something about that the purity of their tone that has tremendous repertoire throughout Western music written for it. Um, so the experience as a kid, yeah, you run around, yeah, you play gym, but then you like get in there, and the conductor like pounds his baton, and everybody stands up straight and sits up straight and and sings their parts, and it's uh, it's powerful. There's something about a cappella, the experience of singing with other people. The sum is greater than the individual parts. And yet it's not a competitive sport. It's not like someone wins and someone loses. Like everybody wins. You sing together and that last chord rings out in the cathedral wherever you are. And it's it's really powerful. Yeah. So um, as a kid, like, I'm curious if there was like a role you played in the choir. Like, I don't know if, I mean, maybe you're just sort of being told what to do and you march around, but like, were you uh, sort of like always doing exactly what the conductor said or were you sort of like messing around at the margins and like trying to do things a little bit differently? Or? That's a good question. You know, I was actually the youngest one. So I was the little toe head in the front left-hand corner. And I, I even remember at one point the director at that point making some kind of a statement like, and you guys all need to stay in line. You do whatever. And any of you could be a leader here one day. Any of you, even Deke. Like, because I was like the little, the youngest one in the choir or whatever. And I thought like, wait, I think that's, 
backhanded insult. <laughs> yeah. Like, that wasn't even a compliment. Right. Even this clown could yeah, do exactly. it. Yeah, exactly. Totally. This little, <laughs> yeah, little fart over here in the corner. So, yeah. So I thought, gee, really put me in, coach. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I've been singing ever since. Was it easy to be the music and art guy when you were in high school? It feels like the sort of like the cultural stereotypes is like, you know, of like like band geeks or band nerds or like choir nerds uh, can be like bullied or. Well, the, the, the high school I went to here in San Francisco, San Francisco University High School is constantly on top 20 high schools in the nation list. Private school, very self-actualized, like the, the nature of all the students. We'd sit in circles at lunch and discuss philosophy. It was like one of the, like, we were the kids that everyone else was like, dude, stop it. You're just ruining it for the rest of us. Um, and for myself, I loved art so much that I got all of my requirements out of the way when I was younger, took calculus as a junior, whatever. And then my senior year, I was like, yes, I'm finally free. So I ended up uh, taking so many classes that they had to rewrite the computer program for the school. So the per- there were seven periods in a day, and most students took five classes, maybe six, or maybe after school they do a sports thing. Um, and the computer program was written for nine, but I took 11. So I did uh, AP Studio Art, and I directed a musical, and I did an independent uh, study uh, on different subjects, and also had a quartet all four years through uh, high school that came out of the Music Man, the Little Barbershop Quartet, and constantly was trying to find new music, and oh, we can sing some doo-wop songs or whatever, but nothing was out there, so that's when I started arranging a cappella. When you were still in high school? When I was in high school. Okay, so... uh... I know we're going to do sort of a how-to portion, but I sort of feel like this might be a good opportunity to ask right now. It's yeah, like sure. when you're a young person and you decide, okay, I want to arrange a cappella, like how do you even start to understanding what that means or, or like what was the sort of – what is the starting point when you want to arrange music So back then, the idea of being an a cappella arranger wasn't a thing. Like maybe people knew about Gene Perling from the Singers Unlimited. Maybe people thought of like Robert Shaw and choral music. But acapella as a word, if you said acapella, people thought classical music, church music, maybe doo-wop or barbershop. Um, But for me, singing this quartet, you know, occasionally we'd find a piece of sheet music that was out there, some of the old barber pole cat songs. But I wanted to sing songs that were on the radio. I wanted to sing current pop music. And in fact, there was a college acapella group that came to my high school, the Tufts Beelzebubs. Zing, right up here. And uh, they performed for the whole student body because someone uh, from my high school had, had gone to Tufts and the New England Conservatory of Music and, and did the double degree program that I later would do. And I was like, shaft of light, oh, wham, hit me. And I was like, this is amazing. So he was nice enough to send back a couple arrangements from the group. And I looked at those and I studied them. And then I studied Gene Perling stuff and I studied choral music. And I was like, so if I take these things and then write the other notes that I want with a song that I want, I can figure out how to do this. Um, and my first arrangement was when I'm 64, the Beatles. And I was like, I can do this for... And I like, you know, wrote out all the notes and whatever. And I recently uh, found it and dug it up and looked and I was like, that's not bad. <laughs> and uh, then like turned around and published it. And I was like, here, publish first thing I ever did when I was in high school. Uh, yeah. And, and then I was off to the races. And that, that's how it started. And so, um, so you have this experience with Tufts. You wind up going to Tufts. Did you seriously think about any other colleges or was it just like, oh, I need to go where that is happening? All right. You ready for this story? Yeah. So 
I went, uh, I looked at other colleges. In fact, I looked at Yale and I looked at Columbia. And when I, when I went to, looked at Yale, because my, my grades were great, and I was like, yeah, I can go wherever I want. So I looked at Yale and I said, okay, I want to go to the music department because I really want to make music. Uh, and uh, they said, well, our, yeah, our music department's here on this in this building on the second floor. And I said, great, do you have any practice rooms? And they said, well, these rooms here have pianos in them so you can practice that. I was like, goodbye. Like, that was all I needed to know. I wanted a true, like, conservatory experience. I wanted to be surrounded by violinists who practice 14 hours a day. I wanted composers <laughs> with, like, crazy hair and chalky fingers and, and the whole experience, which is why um, I started looking for programs. Cause, and at the same time, I wanted a real liberal arts degree. So I started looking for programs where I can get a full conservatory experience and a full liberal arts degree. And there were only a few in the country, uh, and like Ohio and Rochester. I was like, I can't, too cold. So the great thing about Tufts um, is it's in Boston, and it had a double degree program with the New England Conservatory of Music, where you apply to both schools. If you get into both schools, you matriculate at both schools, and you do eight years of college overlapped into five years. No one's holding your hand. you got to figure it all out yourself and get all your credits taken care of. But uh, it was absolutely the right program for myself. Right. Boston is pretty cold, too, though. Uh, it is cold. You're absolutely right. But it's Boston. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a coastal yeah. boy. It's a big city. So anyway, so I was like, that's what I want to do. Applied to Tufts, applied to New England Conservatory, just those two schools. I was like, that's what I want to do. It was great. Got into both. And then it came time for my Beelzebub's audition. So I went into this audition, and I've been idolizing these guys for three years since they came to my college. You maybe yeah. you're laughing. You can already tell where this is going. But I'm not. But what I want to know is like, like how soon, like after you got to campus? Yeah. Like, did were you audition? Was this like basically like one of the first things you do after oh, yeah. you get to Tufts? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. You're a freshman, and you see the posters around because they want to get all the like new green recruits before they realize how crazy it is and how much work it is and everything like that. <laughs> right. So they do a big freshman performance. All the acapella groups on campus, which back then there were. Um, there was a male and a female group, and then there was a new mixed group. Ooh, three groups on campus. Now they're like 19 or something. Um, actually, no, they're, I think there are nine or ten at Tufts, which is great. Uh, but so auditions rolled around, and I'd been idolizing these guys. I strolled in the room, like all excited. I'm ready for this audition. I've been studying music. I, did, I got a five in the AP Music Theory, five in the AP Music History. I know my acapella. I arrange. I mean, come on. This is what I'm built to do. Walk in there. Okay, uh, so let's start you out and have you sing some scales. I said, oh, no need. Uh, here's my high note. Here's my low note. Here's my break. I know exactly uh, what. And they were like, why don't you just sing it for us anyway? So they like had me sing the scales up and down. And uh, like the music director went, uh, that, he's exactly right. Those are his notes. I said, yeah, yeah. And they said, okay, great. Sing a solo. So I sang a solo. And they're like, oh, lovely. That sounds really good. Now we'd love to have you sight read a song. Here's uh, Ralph Vaughan Williams' uh, arrangement, uh, Bushes and Briars. And I said, ooh, let me stop you right there. That's on your album, Score, from 1982. I, I have that album, so it wouldn't really be fair to have me uh, sight sing this. And they said, um, you know what? Let's just have you sight sing it anyway. So why don't you sight sing the second tenor part, which I did perfectly. And then, oh, uh, wow, that's great. Uh, first tenor part? Nailed it. Uh, baritone part. Why don't you sight sing that? And uh, so I did. And then just as soon as we were done, I said, I, I just need to uh, apologize. In measure 14, um, in the second half, there's a half note. Uh, there's a B written. I sang a C. They both work in the chord, but I just wanted to make sure you knew that I, I got that wrong. <laughs> so you can probably tell where this is going. Uh, they called me back for auditions. And then... Um, I thought they would just call the police and say, yeah, there's totally. a, this man is disturbed. Well, they, they were like, well, clearly the guy's got talent. He's really excited. Anyway... 
end of the story was I, I made it to the callbacks, but in the end they decided not to take me. And I was they were like, this guy's Why? overzealous and stuff. <laughs> My problem was I, back then I thought all these guys were like crazy, amazing musicians. It was like trying to audition for the King Singers. Like, what did I know? Meanwhile, all of these guys are looking at me like, who's this guy? Who's this twerp? Like, what's going on? So then, second time, I'm going to audition in the spring, and I'd taken an, um, I'd moved out of my dorm and into the arts house, and uh, convinced another another guy who was in the WB program. Like, we got the big room on the first floor, and uh, we're good buddies. We're both like commuting back and forth, and uh, he had auditioned for the Bubs first time around. He's like, I don't want to do this anymore. I was like, Dude, come on, it'll be really fun. We'll be in the Bubs together. We're both great singers. This will be awesome. So we both auditioned for the Bubs. He gets in, and I don't. <laughs> And he's miserable. He's like, dude, I didn't want to do this without you. I thought that we were going to do this together. It'd be really fun. And I was like, no, no, it's fine. Go on without me. It'll be fine. Um, and then... Wait, hold on. Are they, what sort of like feedback are they giving you? Like, like, are they saying to you, like, you have a really nice voice, but... Like, in the world of technology, they would just say, we don't think it's a culture fit. Yeah, I think know. they basically said the, the clumsy college equivalent of that. Like, it's okay. not quite right. Right now, you, like you know, you're talented, but I mean, basically, what they were saying is you're like, like over anxious, super excited. I don't know, like a total acapella dork. Back before that was a thing. So anyway, um, wait, he, hold on. That I mean, that just has to be like heartbreaking for you, though, right? Because if I'm imagining that you're thinking, like, what else do I have to do for these crushing, people? crushing, yeah. failure, yeah. failure. Yeah. And, and, and the, the long story is I want my kids to fail because I realized like all this did was just coil up my spring tighter. This made me like, okay, all right. So then, so that was in the spring. Then in the fall, again, when the freshmen rolled around, they had auditions again. And I was like, you know what I'm going to do? My buddies in this group, all the old guys who were like, all the like, cool guys, they graduated out. A bunch of people that I'm matriculated with are in the group now. And I'm going to walk into this audition and I'm going to act like I don't care at all. So I walked in and they said, okay, so what song do you want to sing for us? And I said, I don't know. I haven't really thought about it. And they're like, oh, uh, what, what could you sing? And I was like, well, I don't know. It's summertime, I guess, maybe. And I just, like, I was just like throwing things out there. Here, read this. Okay. So I read that. Yeah, whatever. And just like, and uh, I got in. How about that? It was amazing. Um, and the, the funny thing is when... The book Pitch Perfect was written. This story is told in it. Like, here's this guy who, like, loves acapella. It's everything to him. I was, like, collecting acapella CDs. I might have had the biggest collection of acapella CDs of anyone. Like, you know, this is my life. Um, and Kay Cannon, who wrote the script to Pitch Perfect, obviously liked the story a lot because she took the idea of two guys who were roommates and buddies and one of them gets in the group and the other one doesn't. <laughs> but you must have had to give that same rejection to other when I was music director, I did, which which actually I think was uh, really powerful, because every person, what happens is for everybody who doesn't make it to the makes it to the callback round, but doesn't make it, once the group decides, they go and find these guys to sing them into the group, and the music director stays behind and calls these people, even if it's two in the morning. And there were a couple of people who tried out twice, three times, really wanted to get into the group, and like, like, I just told them, you know, I am you. My heart goes out to you. Audition again. You know, that passion you have, the fact that you want to be in this group, that means everything to me. And um, the for the Beelzebubs, it had to be unanimous. Every single person had to want someone to be in the group. So that was tough. Uh, but at the same time, I told people, don't give up. It took me three times. And in fact, they still to this day tell people, I think the music director is when someone doesn't get in, just so you know, 
Deke Sharon had to audition three times to get in the Beelzebub, so don't give up. Come on back to the next round of auditions. Right. Yeah. Um, what was the moment like when you were sung into the group? It was awesome. Yeah. It was awesome. In fact, I, I kind of knew what all the story, like I knew way too much. So I knew as soon as I didn't get a phone call of rejection, they were like, oh, we need to come back for a second callback. I was like, I'm in. But uh, the thing, the thing is there's that, there's something for anyone who hasn't sung acapella before, that feeling of standing in a circle with other people, the power of your voices together is just electric. And it still makes my, my hair stand up sometimes when you're singing with other people. And you're like, this is amazing that we can create this together. So even during the callbacks, even when I didn't get in the group, the, the energy uh, singing and standing in that circle with everyone was, was palpable. And Yeah. yeah. What, um, what has stayed with you from your time in the Beelzebubs? Wow. Well, I, I like to joke that even though I went to Tufts University and New England Conservatory, I actually went to Beelzebubs University. It's there that I learned to, to lead, to music direct, to arrange, to organize, to, to find a way to negotiate with peers. I mean, there was so much that you can learn in a book. And I think that a lot of going to college is also just trying to find yourself and figure out what you want to do. I knew what I wanted to do. I had that inside of me the whole time. And uh, so I didn't view each rehearsal with the Beelzebubs as like, oh, here's this kind of thing I'm going to do after school. And then let's play some Frisbee. It was like, this is the future. This is who I am and what I want to do. So I pushed every rehearsal. I try new things. And in fact, um, Tower Records was located right between the two college campuses. And every Tuesday when the Billboard charts went up, I, I would go and look and like, okay, what songs are going up? Because what I wanted to do was sing a song that was just going up the charts. So I'd look at a song on Tuesday, arrange it that night, teach it on Wednesday and Thursday night in rehearsal, Friday and Saturday, that weekend at a road trip, sing it for college campuses. And, and, the women would go nuts. I mean, that's what singing in a male contact pellet group is all about. You want to make people fall in love with you, uh, in case that wasn't clear. Uh, and I think uh, the troublemakers in Pitch Perfect capture that pretty well. So anyway, there was one day I was walking along, and I'd just seen the movie Say Anything with that great uh, John Cusack holding the boombox up above his head, Peter Gabriel in your eyes. I was like, this song, oh, what a, what a scene in a movie. So, And I looked, and it was coming back up the charts, and I was like, that's a song we need to do. So I went back to my dorm room that night and I started to arrange it and it was not something that you could just shooby-doo-wop your way through. Four-part choral arrangement, not possible. So I was like, how am I going to get myself out of this mess? So I got a, a big piece of like orchestral staff paper and I just started writing out parts that I heard. And in fact, it was five different percussion lines and all these synthesizers and strings and I, and I basically shaped them into something that you could use 14 voices to sing. A lot of guys, most of them are one on a part and stuff, and I brought it into rehearsal, and the guys looked at me, and they're like, dude, this is nuts. What are you trying to do to us? And I was like, just try it, just try it. So we learned it, and I had five different guys, each one doing different kinds of percussion sounds. One guy was a shaker, like, another person was talking to him, and all the different layers together worked in a way that individually everything sounded a little bit silly, but they were like, all right, we'll try it this weekend. And when we sang it for the audience, I remember this clearly. It was one of those moments, like at the end of a movie, where there's like, like you're done, that last chord rings out, and then there's silence. And then everyone just goes nuts <laughs> and screams and throws stuff in the air. Like, I mean, that's the way I remember it anyway. And I was like, I'm on to something here. And, and people now, when they look at that in my senior year and arranging all these songs with vocal percussion, they, they really lock into vocal percussion as being 
the key element to kind of shift the sound of, of college and then professional acapella afterwards. But in point of fact, it wasn't really the vocal percussion alone. It was that as a piece of an overall larger picture of using the voice as instruments, treating a song rather than kind of taking it and bringing it to more traditional choral idioms, using your voices and filling out the entire sonic spectrum. you got 14 guys, use 14 guys. And the human voice is so much more dynamic and varied than people give it credit for. Through the music history, the person stands in the front and sings the melody, and then we have like sousaphones and tubas and all this stuff behind them making all these sounds. But the human voice is the most varied, the most versatile instrument, and the most powerful instrument. I mean, no synthesizer, no piano can make you laugh or cry within three seconds. Like, that's what we have inside of ourselves. So I was approaching each arrangement as what can we do? How can we use our voices in different ways and stretch and expand the sound of what acapella can be? Uh, let's talk about what acapella was before you start doing this, right? We were sort of talking about it a little bit when I got here, but what was uh, sort of the state of acapella before you started playing around with vocal percussion and 14-part pieces. Can I add something to that? Yeah, sure. Where did the, uh, the history of like vocal percussion and acapella, when did that come into the yeah, whole thing? Like that, I think that there's like that moment, right? Yeah, oh, that so was... Let's talk about that. Yeah, that bit. was a moment. So so basically, when I was in college, uh, the Beelzebubs had this kind of definitive database they took good care and of. And the Beelzebubs had a database that they took really good care of. And every fall, we sent out a letter to every known college acapella group, which back then there were only about 200. And we said basically, like, we'd love to jam with you. We have a solid willingness to party. I remember that line in there, solid willingness to party. And as a result, most college acapella groups got one, maybe two road trip invitations a year. We sang at at least 20 different college campuses a year. I mean, we were just road warriors. And I was gone every weekend, and I loved it. And that's where I met my wife. I mean, like, it was the best thing about college. So um, going around to each of these campuses, you pretty quickly realized there was a canon of about 20, maybe 30 songs that everyone sang. We, I mean, you heard that, it was like, oh, we're doing that. Or do-do-do-do, shoo-do, and shoo-be-doo. I mean, there were a couple barbershop songs, a bunch of doo-wop songs. There was Longest Time by Billy Joel, Only You by the Flying Pickets, It's So Hard to Say Goodbye to Yesterday. Uh, it's All Right, uh, Huey Lewis in the News. Like There were a few songs that everybody did, and they all did the same songs. Occasionally, someone would get a little bit creative and, and try something different. But for example, when I was in my high school group, I arranged Bohemian Rhapsody for four-part male voice in 1986, which was insane. And you know, we like won this Bay Area Choral Awards and stuff like that. And, and, but that energy wasn't in... The, the college acapella world, people were kind of looking for things that were already very vocal, like Crosby, Stills, and Nash, oh, let's do that. Um, and people just stayed away from U2 and Peter Gabriel and Pink Floyd, and, and, and yet that's the stuff that people were listening to, like the college rock and Duran Duran. And so I wanted to find a way to, to make that stuff work with our voices, and uh, that's where it all came from. And so weaving in vocal percussion, like Beatbox had had... In, you know, throughout the 80s, there was a tradition of beatboxing with hip-hop. Beatboxing being different from vocal percussion in, 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 in the technique and the sound and the style. Beatboxing is much more about cool sounds and scratching and, and uh, laying down a groove that someone can rap over. Vocal percussion is much more imitating the sounds of, of a rock drum kit, and uh, it's much less flashy. In fact, vocal percussionists in a lot of cases just disappear into the sound 
and they can't, like, they need to hold a super steady groove effortlessly for three minutes, et cetera, et cetera. But, but there are connections between the two. And, and I think back in those days, we were trying to draw and take from, from uh, what was going on in the hip-hop world uh, when we were working in the, in the Bubs, And yet, a lot of it we couldn't use, that whole, like, stick, stick, stick. I mean, you couldn't do that in a, in a song by Bruce Springsteen or something. It would be completely ridiculous. So uh, we had to really derive these sounds ourselves. Um, how do you make a really good kick drum and snare sound and, and, and hi-hats and, and weave that into what's going on and, and figure out a method of breathing where you can create sounds on an inhale? And also, this was all happening off microphone. So within the hip-hop community, you've got guys right there the whole time amplified. They can just go into the, the diaphragm of the microphone and you get this huge kick sound. But for us, you know, you had to you had to make a sound that acoustically would fill a 200, 300, 400 seat chapel. Right. So, um, so college is uh, wrapping up. And at this point, uh, are you saying to yourself, like, I'm going to find a way to just make this my job? Basically. So my last year, music directing the Bubs, I made so many friends on these road trips and we had so much fun. I thought like, let's find a way to connect people. But this is pre-internet. This is before web pages. This is before cell phones, even pagers. Like we're talking about paper. So I created a newsletter, the Collegiate Acapella News. And it was just, you know, eight pages, 16 pages. And I gathered together all of these names and would send it out to people once every other month. And we had road trip tales in there. And I had a little, like, ad for, oh, I like to do custom arrangements if anybody wants any. And uh, there were there were a schedule of different dates and gigs. And, and uh, within two episodes, within two editions of this newsletter, I had a lot of uh, fans and a lot of professional groups. Well, not a lot. There were only a handful of professional groups. But a few people reaching out to me and saying, you know, would you expand the scope of this so that, you know, all of the acapella community can enjoy it? So I changed the name from the collegiate acapella news to the contemporary acapella news, needing a C so it can still be the can. And when I graduated and moved back home to San Francisco, I filed the nonprofit paperwork for the Contemporary Acapella Society of America. And uh, then I was off and running. And I decided I wanted to make a career of this new kind of acapella. And people told me, I was crazy. I mean, crazy. The, the other alums of, of the Beelzebubs, like there's a, a sit-down dinner with, with them and they take you out and they're like, okay, son, what are you going to do? Like, oh, I'm going to be a doctor. Oh, I'm going to be a lawyer. Oh, great. What are you going to do? The, I'm going to make a career of acapella. And there was silence at the table and they said, okay, um, what are you going to do if that doesn't work out? I was like, well, I'm just going to do that. <laughs> and, and in fact, my high school choral director now admits he told other people that it was like I was going around in love with tiddlywinks, wanting to create a lifetime of tiddlywinks, a tiddlywink circuit and tiddlywink workshops and tiddlywink. I'm not, no joke. And now he's like, dude, you, you did it. The tiddlywink thing worked out for you. What year is this? This is 1991 when I graduated. And uh, it, there was, back then, there were 200 college acapella groups, just a handful of professional groups, maybe five. Um, there was no contemporary acapella in high schools. Like, it was absolutely frowned upon. It wasn't even a thing. It was like, oh, that thing, that kind of Yale whiff and poof thing that, that people do in college. Like, it didn't have any credibility there, per se. And is, Sorry, is this before or after Carmen Sandiego? Oh, this is before. Okay. So, it, yeah, Carmen Sandiego hadn't been on the air. There was a spiking company, uh, Do It Acapella, special that was on TV my senior year. And, and people got to check out and see you know, Ladysmith Black Mombazo and the Persuasions and some of those classic groups. Um, 
but the sound hadn't really taken off. And Rockapella back then, I mean, they were singing bar mitzvahs and, you know, and then when they got the Carmen San Diego show, the hoo-up, hoot-and-do-way, hoo I mean, it's very, like, post-doo-wop. It's like, you know, the missing link before we got into what's the contemporary sound. And Rockapella definitely was a piece of, of moving it all forward. Um, and I just... So the reason I did this was I loved it. I loved it so much. And I like I had this feeling like if people only knew what this was, they would love it too. Every time when you perform at a festival, you gather a crowd. If you're singing on the street corner and these college audiences went nuts. So I felt like I had lightning in a bottle. But of course, as is often the case with, with you know entrepreneurs, it's a distribution issue. How do you get word out there? People didn't know what the word acapella meant. People didn't know what this thing was. So it took 10 years, and then it was a punchline, you know, in Scrubs, Jennifer Aniston movies and whatnot. It was, and then The Office, like it was like the dorkiest thing in the world. But then the phone rings, NBC, the sing-off. We got an opportunity to take what we do and put it on television, and people loved it and respected it, which was even more important. Right. So... Um... So before we get to the, the thing of like how how are you able to like pay your bills like running a nonprofit uh, acapella awareness society? Well, when I graduated, I started a professional group called the House Jacks, and uh, we started gigging, and, and within a year and a half, we were full time. So while we were out there performing in our busiest year, we did over 250 shows across America, like kind of trying to spread this new sound. We had a vocal percussionist in the group, the first like full-time designated vocal percussionist in an acapella group. But at the same time, I had the Contemporary Acapella Society of America. I was doing custom arranging for groups. And in fact, that had started in college. Other colleges heard my arrangements and they called me. Like found my phone number, talked to somebody, and called me and said, "Would you do arrangements for us?" So by the time I graduated, I already had a full-fledged arranging business happening, which is great. So I kind of stumbled into that. And when I graduated, I was like, "I'm just going to make all these pieces happen." And uh, and in every free moment I had, it was like, "Let's help." Go. At every free moment I had, let's start a festival, the first ever contemporary acapella festival. Let's start a competition. Like I, I knew that. The thing is with basketball, you get a bunch of college guys playing basketball in a gym. It's just a bunch of guys playing basketball in a gym. But if you create this whole national competition around it, it becomes March Madness. Well, I wanted to create the March Madness of acapella. So that's where the NCAA became the NCCA, the National Championship of College Acapella, which after a few years became international, which is why it's now the ICCA's. An odd collection of letters, but there was a reason for it. It was a play on the whole idea of March Madness. Um, and all of this stuff back in those days. And honestly, even back then, the guys in the house, Jack, some other friends, I mean, they were, they were supportive, but they still like snicker. They were like this guy with this like crazy tilting at windmills thing with his pitch pipes and his newsletters and his like little conventions. And let's get some people together on a Sunday and sing. Like, that's what it was. It was just like, let's, let's build something. Right. And so then the phone call comes from, from NBC and, and how did they uh, – do you know how, like, how, how they knew you or how did you know those folks? Well, um, it was actually Sam Weissman who uh, was pitching a movie to Sony. Sam Weissman had sung in the ALSOBs and uh, he was pitching a movie about college acapella to Sony 
which was uh, written by Brad Hall, who used to be on Saturday Night Live, married to Julie Louis-Dreyfus, and it was all going to be like about this male college acapella group and all their zany antics and stuff. And Sony was like, no, not a movie. I don't think an acapella movie would ever do anything. But what about a TV show? So they developed this idea and, and got all the pieces in place. And then at the last minute, they thought, maybe we could use one more set of hands just to kind of help out with arrangements. So uh, they asked around a couple people, and supposedly what they tell me is everybody said, you got to call Deke. So I got this phone call right before production started. Casting had already happened. And uh, I walked on set, and it was, uh, it was an absolute full TV show. But I have to say that people didn't know what they didn't know. On my first day, I asked, like, so when are sound checks for all the groups? And I was told, sound checks? There aren't going to be any sound checks. And I was like, we're dead. <laughs> so I literally just ran around and did whatever it took to try to make that show happen. And by the end of the first season, they'd made me a producer. Uh, my understanding is that you have to shoot these seasons in a sort of insanely compressed time frame. Correct. Can you talk about uh, why that is and sort of how it works? Well, uh, the, the, the nature of a television show is born like television shows have budgetary constraints and when you fly all these singers from all around the country and you put them up in hotels and they're there all the time people want to make this thing happen quickly so our schedule was brutal because these singers wake up in the morning learn your music here's a choreo rehearsal now let's do some package shoots wardrobe fittings go back into vocal rehearsal now we've got a legal meeting bam 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 constantly happening and i was working with all of the different groups in that first season um, until late at night and then I'd have to stay up in the middle of the night and arrange. There was one night I didn't even sleep. I was just like, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. You too. Go, go. 4 a.m., 5 a.m., go. Hand it out the next morning, first thing. Um, and it was crazy. As the show built, second season, third season, I was able to build up a staff of people. But uh, I felt very kind of lone cowboy early on. Because <laughs> right. were you arranging like every song that was sung? Or? Well, my philosophy for the show back then uh, was remains to today, which is basically, I like it best when groups can arrange their own music because they know their own voices. Then we'll take and mold that and morph it. But the later we get into the run, the more exhausted they get and the more they'd be like, could you arrange this for us? So then I'd have to whip something up, give it to them and then, and then morph it with them, meld it to their voices. And because I always want their input into the sound and style. So it doesn't all end up sounding like the same guy arranged everything. Right. Um, John, what else should we ask about the sing-off? I just have a very specific question. <laughs> yeah, please. <laughs> Let's get uh, into I've it. I've wondered it since I've been watching it. Those big group numbers at the beginning of the show. Yeah. Are all of those mics live? Ah, it's a good question. Yeah. Well, here's the truth. No. But they can't be. So NBC wanted an opening number for just the first show. And then they thought, that'll be, we'll be done with it. Opening numbers, there's like big pageants. They're always tacky and weird, but we have to for the singing show. And then we'll be done with it. But the fact of the matter is they loved it so much, they said, that's a signature of our show. We need them for every single show. And it's quite a production to put these things together. And we'll have as many as 70 different singers on stage together. But here's the deal. I was talking about how they didn't know. One of the things they didn't realize is there aren't that many wireless channels that you can have at the same time, like based on physics. Like, it doesn't work. So during one of the phone calls, I was like, well, we can't have everybody singing live at once. They were like, well, of course we can. I was like, no. Call the tech department. They will tell you that it doesn't exist. So what we had to do is find a quick way 
to get the backgrounds recorded so then everybody could, and they still sing live and there are area mics that are picking up the sound, but we're playing back the background parts and then the percussion, the solos, the ad libs, those are all live. And in a lot of those opening numbers, 20 different people are singing lead vocals at various times and lots of ad libs over. So we still have 25, 30 different live mics and then the area mics, but we do have to also have that pad of sounds that pre recorded. That makes sense. So are the percussionists on a click then, or what's going on? We So we'll pre-record it all. No, that's a good question. We pre-record the whole thing on top of uh, a, like a keyboard MIDI demo that came through the finale file of the arrangement that I've created. And in fact, the way we do it, because we don't have a music studio and we want it to sound realistic on the same mics in the same space, we line up all the singers at the end of a rehearsal in front of the monitors on stage. We play back that uh, like kind of keyboard track just loud enough that they can hear it, but not so loud it'll bleed into the microphones. And then I run around in front of them, like, come on, guys, energy, here we go, bigger. And then uh, they, they sing through the whole thing, and always the first time is terrible. And I'm like, guys, you sound like you're in a recording studio. It's so dead. Just imagine this whole place is going to be full of people screaming so to make them sing it again and, like, really get into it and move around the stage or whatever. And they're like, all right, good. Tenors, that was good, because you can't record all 70 at once either. It's like, all right, tenors, get off the stage. Altos, here we go. Come on, you saw the tenors. Don't be like the tenors. Let's do this in one take. They never do, but it doesn't matter. You still got to get them riled up. And then by the end, we end up with their voices layered together that we're able to to mix and, and create that kind of big sound that we can put all the leads on top of. Right. Cool. Should we move to Pitch Perfect? Yeah, that's an insane production. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's crazy. What's that? It's, it's cr- it was crazy. Production. And moreover, the first time we were doing it, th- th- it wasn't like it had been thought through. It was yeah. like, well, uh, so you say we need to record these people Where? We don't have time to get everybody in the studio. I was like, then we record here. How are you going to do that? Uh, in front of the speaker. Like, it was like that. I mean, that the first season of the sing-off was like... And the thing is, I, like, literally, you know, I, I, I had this philosophy. I've come this far. Acapella's come this far. I'm going to make this work or die trying. And basically, I just did whatever I felt the right thing to do was regardless of if it was my job. Usually it wasn't my job, but I didn't care because all that mattered to me was that we find an opportunity for all these amazing groups to be seen and heard. And uh, I got, I think my first note, I got like a little handwritten note that said like, we see what you're doing and we appreciate it, Sony. And I was like, <laughs> whoa, is this like a spy thing? It was really cool. So I was like, oh, I'm just going to keep going. Go, go, go. And uh, in the end, it ended up working out. Yeah. yeah. But so that, that's... Asset, then it, like, did you feel like the reputation of acapella was resting on yes. this show? Yes. This was our one. This was our one opportunity. Th- it wasn't like we're going to get another chance. Oh, if this reality show about acapella falls on its face, it's not like anybody's ever going to take another chance on this for the next thirty years. So this was it. I literally said, "I'm going to do everything it takes to make this thing work. Sleepless, whatever, and just go and make it happen." Um, and it was, I mean, it was, it was crazy. In fact, the Beelzebubs, those guys didn't even want to do the show. They were like, TV, it sounds stupid. I was like, dude, just let's just go do it and have fun. And if it sucks, we walk. You know, like, let's just go. And Because I needed to get them there, too, because they had so much energy, so much love of singing. And I knew that would translate onto the uh, cameras. And the fact of the matter is they came in second place. Like, they were a big part of the success of that first year. They showed the world what a male collegiate acapella group could be. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And ever since then, we've had one. In fact, season five, male collegiate group one. It's a big part of what the college acapella, I mean, college acapella is a big part of what the overall acapella community is now. Yeah. What, uh, 
what effect has the the success of the sing-off had on college acapella? Have you tracked that at all? Well, between the sing-off and later Pitch Perfect, the 200 college acapella groups that were there when I graduated in 91 are now over 3,000. So it's been an enormous growth. Now, we, we saw it grow during the 90s. I started a compilation, the best of college acapella CDs, that would motivate people to make better recordings and spend more time on their craft there. And then, of course, the NCCAs, which became the ICCAs, that convinced people to spend more time and try to make great live performances. And, and, and so the push, push, push all the way up. To, and then a decade later, maybe we were up to 1,000 groups and then, you know, and then that became 2,000, and then Pitch Perfect, blam, and we're at 3,000. So it's, it was a series of different steps and stages that grew and, and built on top of each other. Uh, how did you get involved with what became Pitch Perfect? Well, it was actually here in this room that I first met Mickey Rapkin. I got a phone call from a guy who said, uh, I want to write a book about this college acapella world. I'm going to follow three different groups. One's the Tufts, Beelzebub's. And uh, everybody tells me, like, you had a lot to do with this whole college acapella world, so it'd be great to talk to you sometime. I said, well, just, you know, fly out. Come over. I'll take you out to lunch and let's talk. Because in person, face-to-face is always better. So he came over and uh, we, you know, walked down the street and got some got some food and talked and laughed because he sang in a college acapella group at Cornell as well. And, uh, and so he got it. And uh, in the end, the book Pitch Perfect came out and told the story of college acapella and this ch- chapter and a bunch of stuff about myself in there. And, and uh, then I read somewhere online that uh, the rights to the book Pitch Perfect had been optioned. And my first thought was, well, that's never going to get made because everything gets optioned. I mean, 10%, 5% of, of all things that are optioned ever even move past that stage into any kind of production. But then, you know, like maybe two years after I heard it gotten optioned, uh, maybe two years later, I get this phone call and it's Liz Banks. Like, hey, we're going to make this movie. You, you want to do this thing? And I thought, yeah, I want to do it. But again, I still thought like... It's, it's a small movie studio, Gold Circle. They've only had one hit, My Big Fat Greek Wedding. And there are other movies, like their second biggest movies, like Blood Creek or something. Even like horror movies and stuff. I was like, I just, it's a little acapella thing. I just, I hope it does well. But realistically, I'm not going to get my hopes up. We'll just make this movie. And then, you know, people say, like, oh, I heard you worked on a movie. What kind of, you know, like, yeah, it was direct to DVD. Probably didn't see it. But it was really fun. We had a good time. And there were some nice songs in it. Like, that's what I thought I was going to be telling people for the rest of my life. Holy crap! It went nuts, bigger than I think anybody expected. What uh, What was the process of working on that movie? And then talk a little bit about what you did. Well, uh, I think my name's in the credits four different times in the movie. the the The, the process started with a, only a couple of people have been hired, but sitting around a table with Liz Banks and her husband Max and Ed Boyer, who uh, used to be in the Beelzebubs and. Um, we, you know, I, he was the first person I hired to work with me on the sing-off, and he's like Mr. Acapella Mixer guy. He uh, mixes pentatonics, and he arranged for and mixed the stuff for the Warblers on Glee. Like, he's an amazing musician. So Ed and I are sitting next to each other around the table, and we just start going through the script and talking about the different music moments in the movie. And, you know, like, okay, then we need a song at the top of the song. So we need a song at the top of the movie that's going to be, like, Fun and poppy and energetic and draw people in and let people know that this is a music movie, but we want it to be a cappella and we're like banding around and ideas. And someone's like, what about please don't stop the music? Ah, oh, it's perfect because it's about music, but if it's a cappella and it's clear, and if it's the guys group, like and it's not women, you can really tell, like, I mean, it was like these kind of conversations. 
And uh, I remember asking, like, uh, at one point it was like, okay, the Bellas, they need a song that is from before the early 90s that a woman's group would think is really emotional and, and, and cool and meaningful. And everyone else would go like, oh, my God, and roll their eyes. And I was like, Eternal Flame, the Bangles. And like, <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's exactly the song. And I was like, yeah, I saw a group in New Hampshire sing that. And uh, that's what happened. Like, standing there earnestly singing. And you're like, oh, my God, I can't wait for the party after this thing. Like, when will the song be over? So it was like that. We drew on our experiences and our knowledge of music and what had worked on the sing-off and what acapella groups did well. And tried to help craft and shape all these different moments. And we didn't get everything we wanted. In fact, um, we didn't have a big budget. So, for instance, In Your Eyes is in the book Pitch Perfect and was in the original script. But it's a very expensive song to get. So, in the end, we had to swap that out for another big movie musical song, which was Don't You Forget About Me from The Breakfast Club. So, Say Anything became The Breakfast Club in the movie. Like The, the, the music really drove that movie in yeah. a lot of ways. Interesting. And uh, was it uh, like how, how lengthy was the process of working on it? Did... Well, we, there were a lot of meetings over time. And then finally it was like, all right, your plane tickets have been purchased. Do you get to move to Baton Rouge, Louisiana to make this movie? And the fact of the matter is I didn't realize this. More movies are made each year in Louisiana than in the state of New York or the state of California. Like it's movie central down there. Um, so uh, my cool, coastal, foggy California self was plopped in the middle of uh, of Baton Rouge, Louisiana for um, some swampy bayou fun. <laughs> and we spent the first month in what we called acapella boot camp, where uh, every day the actresses and actors were working on music, choreography, and really becoming. So, so at acapella boot camp, the, the actors and actresses really became acapella singers at that point singing, dancing, hanging out together, because we wanted to create that camaraderie. And at the same time, there's just a lot of technical. Acapella is not easy. So there's so much technically that goes into the way you use your voice that's different from just singing Happy Birthday to You or karaoke. And uh, four weeks, honestly, was barely enough to get us across that line. I want to hear some of the differences between like me singing Happy Birthday uh, you know, at, at the sad office cake for a coworker and doing it like acapella with, I don't know, three other people. Mm. Well, let's take the three of you guys in here. Yeah. You might sing, happy birthday to you. And he might sing, happy birthday to you. And he might sing, happy birthday to you. Well, first thing I'm going to have to do is make sure all of you guys align your vowels so the three of you sound like a tight blended unit. Otherwise, it's going to be very disjunct. And the fact of the matter is, with the Barton Bellas, they've been cast to be as diverse a group of people as possible. It's like the Bad News Bears. And when they came in that first day, sat in a circle, and I was like, how many of you guys have sung acapella before? We knew Kelly had, because she was our one ringer. We were like, can we have one acapella singer, please? And for the rest of them, it was like, I sang for a semester in junior high school. Does that count? And I was like, I'm dead. This movie's <laughs> over. It's not going to happen. Um, and so you had bright vowels and you had dark vowels and you had like fluid phrasing. You had really sharp percussive phrasing and all these different things. I had to find a way to bring together the ways and the influences and the techniques that all of them had learned through their entire lives and in, in four short weeks create a, a singularity of, of, of them all. So it'd be as if like, okay, go out and get 
10 different actresses, right? And like they all looked, oh, I can swim, I can swim great. Turn them into a synchronized swimming squad where they all kick the exact same way and their arms go up the exact same way. It's the same kind of idea. I can't believe I just used synchronized swimming as an idea for yeah. acapella. Yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> I mean, against so many letters. <laughs> what did you do? We're not synchronized swimming. But in, in essence, when you're talking about vocal blend, you're talking about synchronicity. You're talking about people moving together, their vocal cords, their sound flowing together. And, uh, and then, who's going to sing low bass? Who's going to do vocal percussion? I looked around them. Does anybody do any vocal percussion? Does anyone even want to? And Shelly Regner was like, I'll try. So you can see there's a little video out there of uh, Acapella Boot Camp from the first season. And I'm sitting here working with her. No. I can say a sharp teeth. And like, like, I gave her like homework each night, and man, those first nights were like sleepless. I was like, this whole movie rests on the music, and I don't know how I'm going to make it not suck. Like, it really was, uh, was crazy, which is all the more reason why when I, when I was right. done, we wrapped the movie, I was like, well, that's a good experience to tell my grandkids, and, and uh, I'm just going to keep moving on with what I do. And the, and the bottom right. line was, I looked around b- b- at my life before all this stuff blew up, and I was like, I'm happy. Like, if this is all it is, and I work with some high school singers there and help some professional groups get started and conventions and music and just make the world a more harmonious place, spread harmony through harmony. That's my life's work. I felt like, I'm happy. I'm doing what I wanted to do. And then all hell broke loose. <laughs> so, and now I'm going to have my own television show on Lifetime. I'm like, what is happening? So, Yeah. It's a bigger platform on which to help share music with more people and hopefully get more people off couches and back to singing the way all of our ancestors used to. Right. Uh, Maybe this is a mean question to ask. Yeah, please. What do they sound like in the room without the benefit of production? The Bardellas? Yeah, yeah. Well. Do they ever? uh, So here's a little, an additional story. The Bardellas, not acapella singers. The Tremelmakers. You've got Ben and Skyler, both of whom are lead vocalists on Broadway, and pretty much the rest of the group were backfilled from local male college acapella groups. So every Friday afternoon, we had a show and tell where they'd sing the songs where they were, and there was a dance movement or whatever. And the Treblemakers were crushing it. They were so good because I was like, give me these guys. I know what to do with them. So in our rehearsals, whatever, and the treble mix was sounding great. My biggest concern early on was like, how are the Bells ever going to win this movie? It's not (laughs) realistic. So in the end, like it was a lot of back and forth and pushing, but I I was able to get the okay to fly in uh, a singer, two singers actually, who were like ringers to create a vocal glue, to sing background parts and just kind of smooth out the sound of the backgrounds. And uh, in a second, I'll show you. You'll, you'll get to hear her. Candace is her name. She is a great singer. And uh, she's able to use her voice in different ways to help pull these different pieces together. So by weaving her into those background parts, it ends up just solidifying it and locking it together. Yeah. Um, well, since we're still talking about Pitch Perfect, like, what, I mean, what can you tell us about uh, the new movie? Was the process the same or... Was it different because you were using actresses who had sort of been through this process once before? Second time around, the actresses knew what they were getting into, and we knew the best way to teach the actresses. Some learn from sheet music, great. For others, they learn much better by listening. So what we would do is we would record a demo, and then we would give them that demo with their part in one ear and everything else in the other ear so they could really learn their part by listening. And before I allow anybody to record anything, they have to sing their part for me by memory. So that when they're in front of the microphone, they can really act 
the part as opposed to like looking at the sheet music and how does my part go here. So I was a bit of a stern taskmaster around all that. Right. Um, uh, and did you, um, was the, was the budget bigger for music this time? Like, did you get all the songs you wanted? (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know, the expression that, uh, success has many parents and failure is an orphan. Well, the first movie was such a small movie. We really kind of got to do whatever we want. Like nobody really cares. So it was like, okay, we can pick this song. We can pick that song. Second time around, everyone's got an opinion and a lot of different ideas are coming down from on high and a lot of concern. What about this mix of songs? Don't we need another hip hop song, whatever. And the one thing I would say is like, guys, can I remind you that the quadruple platinum breakout hit from this song was an old folky country and western tune from 1937 that no one had ever heard of, sung by one woman sitting on a stage with a plastic cup. (laughs) So any decisions you have about demographics and balance and blend and mix and all these things that like are supposed to go into whatever, throw it out the window. Let's find the right songs for this movie. Let's make, let's just make the movie, right? Okay. And in the end, obviously it all came out and worked out and everybody's really happy with all the the different songs we chose. but yeah, there's a lot of opinions coming in this time. Right. Um, yeah. Was that disappointing to you? Was that what? Was that disappointing to you that that was the breakout hit? No. I, my, my, I, like, that there was a breakout hit was like, wow, amazing. I mean, the fact that anything was successful with the movie was so exciting because it brought people into it. And, um, you, I mean, you can only hope that something will catch the zeitgeist. When you look back at Don't Worry, Be Happy, no one was more surprised than Bobby McFerrin that this little happy song that he wrote that was a cappella was a number one hit. It's the biggest a cappella song in the charts ever, ever in American history. Yeah. So you don't count on that happening with Pitch Perfect, but the fact that a song like Cups, you know, When I'm Gone, could become such a big thing is basically completely unpredictable and unfathomable. Right. You know, it it strikes me that when you look at it, probably like the sing office side, but when you look at the the sort of like fictional representations of acapella, the ones that have been really big, so Pitch Perfect and Glee, like the attitude of those works toward the acapella itself, uh, like can seem mean, right? Like the commentators in Pitch Perfect are are mean. Right. I think a lot of the way. So I just wonder, like how, like if you have a thought about that. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. So, so first time we were sitting around that table with Liz Banks, uh, I turned to her and I said, look, I know this movie is a comedy first. You need to make fun of acapella. I want you to. Pull no punches. Go nuts. You're, not, you're never going to have me storming in here and saying, like, you can't make fun of us like that. Like, make fun of us. Every joke, no limits. However, if at the end of the movie people are not out of their seats cheering for this group... You don't have a movie. Like, we're in this together. We need great comedy and we need great music. And the thing is, you can't be laughing at them at the end of the movie. You have to be like, I love these people. I love this music. Look at what you can do with your voice. So, um, and she totally was on on board with that. I mean, she loved the idea of of, uh, making this whole movie because she was at UPenn along with her husband, Max. They saw all the acapella groups there and they laughed about it. And yet at the same time, the groups at UPenn, when they were there, were some of the best in the nation. Really interesting, clever, complex stuff going on. So uh, I think they all, there was also a lot of respect in it as well. It's that double-sided thing. And that's perfect. I mean, it's what the movie is. Yeah, you lure people in with the jokes and then you give them something really just beautiful and special. Yeah, and, and, and American culture has changed in a major way. I know you cover a lot of tech uh, stories as well. The fact of the matter is what used to be seen as dorky is now 
now respected a lot more. In fact, the whole idea of nerds, I think it was Neil Gaiman who, who came up with this whole idea of someone who's a nerd in high school is someone who has a deep love of of something and a great knowledge of and for it. Those are the people who go on to making greatness later on. Ask Malcolm Gladwell, like follow that, that 10,000 hours into the future. And these are the people who everyone else that was laughing at them is going to be working for, right? <laughs> so I think it's just the same in music. It's the same in any field. The, the, the passion that people have when they're creating an acapella is, is true and it's deep and it shows through. And now people are respecting that. They're saying like, wow, you're creating something beautiful with your voices. You're having fun. You're not James Dean, but not everybody is. Like, you know. Right. That was a good and, answer. And, yeah. and it was, frankly, I was on, uh, recently on, on Australian television doing a live feed. I'd never done it. It was like the two second delay or whatever. And the person asked me, like, oh, you do a bunch of instrumental sounds. Can you do them? So I did that. You know, <clears throat> I did the muted trumpet. Like, I did, uh, you know, electric drum. And, and then afterwards, he was like, so you make a lot of, like, weird faces when you do that, right? And I said, like, how do you feel about that? And I said, I long ago gave up worrying about how I look or what people think about me. I decided to make a career of acapella. Like, who cares? Right? And I think the other host of the show was like, yeah, right. Rock on. You know, fight the power. Right. Um, that was great. Uh, so tell us a little bit about uh, the show that you're doing with Lifetime. What's it going to be? So this, I, so I get a phone call. And Lifetime wants to create a show about high school acapella. But unlike these other shows that have been going on, Pitch Perfect and the Sing-Off and, and Glee, like people don't just spontaneously break into song. There really hasn't been anyone looking at what happens in the rehearsal room, behind the scenes. How do you create harmony? What's that process like? What's it like to be in a group but really experience that, you know, working out your problems and your issues together, finding that blend? So um, I was honored that they'd call and invite me to be a part of this new show. It's still doesn't even have a final title. The working title is Sing It. Uh, but in about six days, I'll be flying out to New Jersey and working with the group Stay Tuned, uh, which I'm really excited about. And uh, I'm, I'm excited. I don't even know what to expect. I don't know what the challenges are going to be. I don't know what the format is entirely. All I know is that I'm going to be working with these singers. And together, I want to change the world. Just like before, spread harmony through harmony. Inspire people to sing by watching these young singers and, and see what it really is like. Uh, it is, it's a reality show or it's going to be scripted? Or? It's a reality show. It's a, it's a docu-reality show. The idea is that it's going to follow us behind the scenes and show what's going on, uh, how this is made. And because it's Lifetime, have you gotten any notes about making sure that there's a woman in danger in every episode? <laughs> no comment. Okay. I think it could be kind I of have, a fun thing for I the have, show. I have know? jokes I could crack and I would very soon get my walking papers. Uh, th there are two hosts, actually. The other host, um, are, there are two vocal producers slash coaches and the other coach, Diana Priestler, is um, from a group called Blue Jupiter and she's great. And so there'll, there'll be two different teams and we'll be you know singing with or against each other and then other groups and whatnot. But uh, I think they're all soon to find out. There's not so much against an acapella. Like the idea of competing on the sing-off and the ICCAs, like that's just a way to get people to pay attention to what's going on. Afterwards, everybody's good friends. They hang out and laugh together. There's a real connection between acapella singers and a lot less pretense. So I'm happy to just sing with these people and hang out. Yes. Uh, so looking back over everything, like the... You know, the, the sort of spark of this feature is like, how did you get this job? And in your case, it seems like you, you had to just invent it, right, to like make it a thing, which is great. It's, and it's like, it's sort of the most fun story usually to hear about. Sure. Um, 
But like looking at the landscape now, how do you feel about sort of like where acapella was when you like finally got onto the uh, Beelzebub's and and where it is now? So everyone used to sing. All of our ancestors at the end of the day, end of the hunt, end of the, they'd gather around the fire and they'd sing together and they'd tell stories and there was a sense of community. Even a hundred years ago, if you wanted to make music, you had to make it yourself. There was no recording. The, 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 the act of music was something that everyone had inside of them and they knew that. We can all speak. We can all sing. In fact, we're all animals, crickets and birds and, and the entire animal kingdom. They make, they use their voices to connect with others. But for some reason, once recordings got out there, once people decided Pavarotti goes on stage and everybody else sits in the audience, once American Idol hit the airwaves and they started lambasting people who weren't as good at singing, people are afraid to sing. I, I, I can't tell you how many people I've heard say, I'm tone deaf. You're not tone deaf. There are like three people on the planet who are tone deaf. If your voice goes up at the end of a question, you're not tone deaf. There is a natural rise and fall of your voice. You're just not experienced singing complex harmony. In the same way that someone who's not experienced playing basketball shouldn't expect to hit 90% of their free throws. But that's okay. What I hope we're able to do through this entire thing, through this entire movement, is to convince more people to get back into singing groups. Get off the couch. Because people sing in their car. People sing in the shower. People get drunk and sing karaoke. But they're not singing with other people and having that experience connecting. That changed my life and, and the lives of so many other people that do it. It's so much fun. It's so wonderful. So that's what I want to do. Get others to do the same thing. Well, that is the story of acapella. If you like this interview, subscribe to The Verge Extras on iTunes or your podcast app of choice. We'll be throwing all kinds of programs like this into the feed. And for even more great stuff, visit, as always, theverge.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.